Please now speak through my foolishness, but speak to us with your words of authority and bring glory to your name. Amen. Well, the wilderness is a place of barrenness. It's a place of abandonment, loneliness, hunger and thirst. It's a scary place because it's about coming face to face with forces that are far bigger than us, forces which threaten to overwhelm us. Few choose to go into the wilderness, and if they do, they usually choose to go into the wilderness only because they know that there's somewhere they can get to through the wilderness. But the wilderness has also been, in Christian thought and experience, the place of meeting with God. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, went into the literal wilderness for 40 days in order to meet with God and to face the demons and to face evil. And the people of Israel had been a slave people in Egypt. They had cried out to God and God had rescued them. And through the leadership of Moses, he brought them out of slavery and promised them a new land. But to get from Egypt to the promised land, they needed to go through the wilderness. And in our story, we meet them in the wilderness. They have no water and they are thirsty. It was serious. And they begin to grumble. They say to Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt to die of thirst in the desert? It's better to be a living slave in Egypt rather than a dead refugee in the desert. It's very understandable. When things get tough, we start to grumble. I was talking to a fellow vicar who was saying that he wondered at times whether some particular sins get a grip on particular communities. They are sins that are not challenged and that then spread like a virus. He was saying that in his particular community, he felt the sin was the sin of grumbling. Talking of water, Matt, would it be possible to have a glass of water? Grumblers are those people whose glasses are always half empty. Even if the most wonderful things happen, they would still find something negative in it. And grumblers can never be satisfied. (coughs) Because even if they get what they want they would still grumble. There are two problems with grumbling. The first is when we grumble, we are blind to the goodness of God. The New Testament writers urge us in all our prayers, in all our situations, to pray with thanksgiving because it's when we start to say thank you to God for the things that have happened that we begin to see the blessings that he has given us. And what makes the grumbling here surprising is, yes, the people of Israel are thirsty. It is critical. But they have seen God do astonishing stuff already. There was the stuff with the plagues when they were slaves. And God, through Moses, worked astonishing powers so that they would be brought out of Israel, so they would be brought out of Egypt, so that Pharaoh would let them go. There was the crossing of the Red Sea. They were legging it out of Egypt. Pharaoh had said to them, he'd been before he'd said to them, no, now he says to them, go. Thanks ever so much.
He's changed his mind. He said to them, go, go, go. And they start to go. And then Pharaoh changes his mind again. And he sends his army after them. So the people of Israel are here. They've come out of Egypt. And on one side of them, there is the sea. And behind them, there is the Egyptian army. And they are stuck in the middle. And they cry out and they say, help, what are we going to do? And Moses prays, and you know the story probably. The water of the sea parts. The Israelites walk through. The Egyptian army try to follow. The sea closes and the Egyptian army is destroyed. And in the very next chapter, the people are in the desert now. They can't go back because the sea is there, but they're hungry. And and they cry out to Moses and they say, give us some food. And Moses thinks, what do I do? And he prays. And God provides a whole flock of quail who crash land on the camp that night. And in the morning, they discover this sort of dewy bread-like stuff on the floor. Uh, and they pick it up and they eat it. And, it and, and, and it's like bread. And they call it manna because manna means what is it in the language. So they call it what is it. So they've seen God do astonishing things. They've seen what God could do. And yet here they still grumble. The writer of Psalm 95 picks this up. He says, today if you hear his voice, that's God's voice, Don't harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. And then when we grumble, we begin to play the blame game. The people grumble and they blame Moses. Even though Moses has been obeying God, verse 1 tells us they traveled from place to place as the Lord commanded. It's always good to find someone you can blame. It might be the vicar. It probably is the vicar. It could be the diocese, the local authority, the hospital, social workers, or bankers, or the government. It's the easy option. It saves us from looking too hard at ourselves. Someone said, we are taught you must blame your father, your sisters, your brothers, the school, the teachers, but never blame yourself. It's never your fault. But it's always your fault, because if you wanted to change, you're the one who has got to change. You know, it's too easy to blame politicians, to say that they're all the same, they're corrupt, they're in it for themselves. Somebody has to do the job. Somebody has to decide how limited resources are to be spent. Somebody has to make some very tough decisions. And because we live in a democracy, there is an alternative to grumbling about the present bunch. You. Get involved. You probably could do a better job, but we'll never know until you're prepared to put your head above the parapet and do something, rather than just sit in the comfort of our armchairs and blame the people who are actually doing something. I was challenged several, a few years ago, when I I, I was um, sort of writing about the parish share system to the bishop and I said the diocese says this the diocese says that and the bishop wrote back to me uh, and he said by the way he said who are the diocese who are they (laughs) he said you're as much a part of it get involved but this story is not only just about the people of Israel it's also the story about Moses he too finds himself in a very tough place 
He's taken the people to the place God asked, them to take, asked, God asked him to take them to. There's no water, and the people want to stone him. He could, I guess, play the grumbling and blame game. He could grumble about the people. They leave it all up to me. I'm the only competent one. The reason we're in this mess is because the people simply don't deserve me. Or he could grumble about God. God, what are you doing? God, it's all your fault. I like the quote that I came across when I was preparing for this, the person who said, I started wondering if God really existed. The world seemed too empty and lonely for there to be a God in it. But I figured he must exist because I kept blaming him for everything. (laughs) But Moses doesn't blame God. He doesn't blame the people. Instead, he takes the situation to God. He prays. Moses remembers how God has spoken in the past, what God has already done. He remembers the promise that God has given this people. He wants good for this people. So he has a confidence to bring the situation to God. You know, I think of um, a king of Israel who lived many years after Moses, a man called Hezekiah. He was in a sort of Ukraine-Russia situation. You know, he was surrounded by this army that was much, much bigger than him, much, much stronger than him. Uh, And this particular army, perhaps slightly different from the situation I mentioned, but this particular army, uh, you know, they're they're massacred. They're just slaughtered and and destroyed all the other cities and states around And they send Hezekiah a letter saying, Hezekiah, this is what we're going to do to you and to Jerusalem. And Hezekiah takes that letter and he kneels down by his bed. That's my bit. I don't think it says that in the Bible. But he places that letter on his bed and he prays. And he prays, God, have mercy. God, do something Or take Jesus himself, he knew he was about to be arrested, falsely accused, tried in a kangaroo court, mocked and shamed, and then put to death in one of the most painful ways imaginable. So he goes to a garden and he falls down and he prays. He doesn't blame his disciples, he doesn't even blame Judas, he doesn't blame the authorities. He simply brings it to God. He prays that God will have mercy on him. He prays that God will provide some other way. But if not, he'll still do it, he says. And we're told God didn't provide some other way, but that an angel came and strengthened him. And Moses brings his situation to God. He prays, what am I to do with this people? They want to stone me. And Moses doesn't give up. God says to him, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. That's probably the last thing that Moses wanted to hear. He probably was thinking, God, please let me retire. I'm 80 years old. Surely some of the younger people should be doing this. But God says, no, I called you to do this. And you are to carry on. And Moses obeys. And he goes ahead with the elders. He comes to the rock. He takes up his staff. By the way, this is the same staff that God had used to do astonishing wonders in Egypt. On one occasion, Moses had struck the river Nile with his staff and it had become undrinkable. Now he strikes the rock with his staff and water pours from the rock. 
and the people drink. God calls Moses to keep on doing what he was doing, especially now that it was getting hard. But I also note God didn't call Moses to do this on his own. He told him to take the elders with him. There will be times when God will lead you into the wilderness. For all of us, there's an Egypt back there, a place of slavery, and there's a promised land up there. But between that place and that place, there are times of wilderness. It may be that you have lost the sense of intimacy with God that you once had. It may be debt, sickness, redundancy, disappointment, rejection, shame, the hatred of others, bereavement, or facing our own death. There are many, many godly people in the Bible who know that experience. Please don't think that if you become a Christian or as a Christian, you won't experience it. It's far, far. It's probably the opposite. Psalm 23 speaks of walking through the valley of the shadow of death. The psalmist in Psalm 66 says, You let men ride over our heads. Somewhere else it talks about you. He says, you let them plough furrows in our backs. We went through fire and water. But when you do go through with it, could I urge you, first of all, don't grumble or look to find someone to blame like the people of Israel. C.S. Lewis wrote this, Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you're still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself, going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Don't grumble. Catch yourself when you grumble and turn it into thanksgiving instead. And secondly, turn to God. Seek him like Moses. Do pray. Bring the burden to God. Pray with thanksgiving. Even if you find yourself in the really deep holes, still thank God for what he's done, for what he's given, for what he's promised. One of the prayers that we pray on the wed- at the wedding service begins like this. I love it. It says, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, for you have created joy and gladness, pleasure and delight, love, peace and friendship. One of the most beloved prayers of the Anglican tradition goes, We bless thee for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but above all for thine inestimable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace, for the hope of glory. Bring it to God, but bring it to God with thanksgiving. And then thirdly, keep on keeping on. Be obedient to the call God has given you. Use the gifts, the staff that God has granted you. Several years ago, before I came here, I went on a conference for church leaders. And we were all asked to look at this particular passage and to reflect what it taught about leadership. 
The thing that struck me was the reference to the staff. When God tells Moses to strike the rock with his staff, he wasn't asking him to exercise blind faith. Moses had seen God work through that staff. God had done astonishing things with it. Now, I suspect we don't have many people here with literal staffs that do the stuff that Moses' staff did. If we do, please let me know. But for me, it was a reminder that the metaphorical staff that God had given to me was the gift of teaching Jesus through teaching the Bible. It's when I've done that that I have seen God work most powerfully and when lives have most been changed. And for me, this was a passage, this passage was a call to continue to teach Jesus through teaching the Bible. So what is your staff? What's the gift that God has given you that you've seen God use in the past, both to speak to you and to bring good to others? Maybe it's the fact you're able to listen. You have practical skills. You're an administrator. Maybe it's when you offer hospitality or your commitment for the socially dispossessed or for mission or for an ability to teach or skill with IT. Maybe God has given you the gift of speaking in tongues or of a prophetic ministry. Maybe you're someone who finds that when you pray for people, things happen. One of the funny things is that when we reach those troubled times, those difficult moments, it's very easy to forget our staff. But God says to Moses, take up your staff and go. And again, I note that this is not something you should do on your own. Moses went with the elders. We need to find a few people who can help us in the Christian life. Forgive me for going on about this and going on about this and going on about this. But this is why small groups are so important. They are the place par excellence where we can discover, grow and use our gifts. But there's a fourth thing which is not so obvious from our passage but which one of the first followers of Jesus makes clear when he thinks many years later about this story. Remember that God is in the wilderness, in the troubled place. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, the rock which Moses struck, the rock from which life-giving water flowed, was Jesus. That's astonishing. That rock, says Paul, was in fact Jesus. Remember that Jesus has gone through it. He spent 40 days in the physical wilderness, but that was only to begin to prepare him for the wilderness experience of crucifixion and abandonment by God. Remember that because Jesus was struck, we can now know and drink of his life-giving presence. The clearest illustration we have that, of that is when we come for communion. We come to remember the one who died that we might drink of him. Most of all, remember that he was there in the wilderness. He was there in what seemed to be a solid lump of rock. And that was where Moses and the people of Israel met with him. So often, we don't want to go there, but so often it's when we go into the wilderness, when we're stripped of everything in which we would usually put our trust. It is in those moments that we most powerfully experience the voice, the power, and the presence of God. 
So may God bless each one of us, especially those of us here now who are in those places now, but also each one of us for those times when he will take us into the wilderness. And remember that just as there was an Egypt and there's a wilderness, there is also a promised land. Amen.